Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Welcome to the second day. Really enjoyed uh, having conversations with everybody. Obviously, we got a small enough group that everybody can get to know each other. And this morning, in a little bit, I'm going to tell you guys a very edgy story that I... It's the sort of story you have to get permission to tell, and I got permission, and uh, it's one I've been intimately involved with, and I think it will intrigue and challenge all of you. Meanwhile, everybody comes and asks Brian, okay, so you and Perry had all these you know, debates and arguments and everything, so what's up with you? And Brian said, well, why don't I talk about it? And I said, all right, well, let's have you talk about that. So without further ado, Brian, you're up. Well, thank you. You know, I did have at least 10 people yesterday come up to me and say, so Brian, how does your story end? (laughs) So I will get to that and you'll indulge me in, you know, a few minutes of storytelling if that's okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this question, which I, a question I like, which is, how do you know when you've gotten a good education? And one of my answers to that question goes back to the seminary I graduated from. So, you know, Perry knows that I'm a guy that likes certainty and crispness and clarity and nice definitions and and so on and so forth. And so when I went to the master's seminary in Sun Valley, California in 1995, I was going to, you know, get my certainty in the world. And that's what I did. And it's an arch-conservative fundamentalist seminary where they do not admit women to the program. That's how arch-conservative it is. And their motto is, quote, we train men as though their lives depended on it. And that's the whole mindset. And it's a three or four year program. And guys would get up, and it was always guys, would get up for their senior testimonies prior to graduation. And they would, almost to a man, they would say, You go to seminary, usually fresh out of college, often fresh out of Bible college in in a lot of cases, and you're cocky and you're young and you think you know everything. And the guys would say, I arrived at seminary thinking I knew the answers. Now I'm graduating and I realize I don't even know what all the questions are yet. Okay, so Perry, you actually got a tiny bit of the narrative wrong yesterday. The seminary doesn't give you a spreadsheet full of answers. Okay. The seminary gives you a mountain of questions, questions, and more questions. Everybody learns Hebrew. Everybody learns Greek. Everybody, you know, learns to parse your verbs and decline your nouns and so on. And you're doing stuff in Genesis and you're dealing with all of these 
historical questions and interpretive questions and exegetical questions. You know, you're, you're picking apart the historicity of the book of Genesis, and you're picking apart, you're dealing with questions of the archaeological evidence for or against the ten plagues in Egypt and stuff like that, and you're dealing with the Gospels and the Q theory and, you know, do we follow the Textus Receptus or the Alexandrian, you know, and the, the apparent contradictions between the Gospel narratives and so on, and Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 6, verse 5, and this use of the genitive um, and the 13 possible meanings of this particular use of the genitive case and so on, and that's that's the education you're getting. So you get questions, 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 and you graduate with a mountain of them. Google AdWords is fairly simple by comparison. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and the thing about an arch-fundamentalist seminary like that is the answers you are allowed to come up with to those questions must fall neatly within some very well-defined boundaries. So. Any answer you come up with is fine as long as the Bible is still inerrant and Jesus is still deity and you still believe that all of its records are fundamentally historical, grammatical, and so on, so that there was a real Jesus and there was a real Apostle Paul and there was a real King David and a real King Solomon and a real Moses and a real Noah and a real Cain and Abel and a real literal Adam and Eve you know, who were created in six literal 24-hour days by the hand of God, and so on. So that was my background, and so when I graduated in 1999, I had all of this exposure to all of these mountains and mountains and mountains of questions, and that, in my view, is a good education, okay? So I got the opportunity to go to China. It just dropped in my lap. So in January of 2000, I went and I took a teaching job at a luxury hotel in southwestern China, beautiful mountain city in the foothills of the Himalayas, and, you know, since I enjoy language, I was going to throw myself into learning Chinese, and I did, made great friends, and this was a, you know, it was totally unexpected, and it was a marvelous experience. One of the things I was not prepared for was just how secular a culture China actually is. Secular, secular, secular to the hilt. You know, something about living under communism and the great proletarian cultural revolution has a tendency to wipe all religious influence away from a culture. And, you know, this is a part of the world that had really never in any significant way been touched by Christianity. And so I'm, I'm dealing with this very secular culture, and I had, in my time there, and I had four and a half years, I had one mostly convert, I guess. This despite the fact I was there to be a missionary. I was supported by the church back home in Los Angeles, and my evangelistic efforts were not all that super effective, let's be honest. But it was a marvelous experience and very eye-opening. It was the very first time that I had ever just been out, completely out of my Christian bubble, you know, that was just 
cultural reinforcement of my Christian beliefs on every level. I was, I was finally out from under that. And I had free time that I hadn't in quite some time. And fast forward to Tuesday, September 4th, 2001, which was exactly one week before 9-11. I was one of the few people in town that had CNN because I worked for a hotel. And so I had it in my dorm. And I, I come home from an afternoon of teaching, and I turn on CNN, and they're playing a replay of Larry King Live from the previous day. And on Larry King Live is are two people with very opposite views of the world this particular day. There is Sylvia Brown, if you've ever heard of her, she's the psychic who can contact your relatives and loved ones who have crossed over. And opposite her that day was James Randi, the atheist, skeptic, former magician. He had replicated a bunch of Houdini's old stunts. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records, and he was a psychic and paranormal debunker. And it was him versus her on Larry King Live, and I was absolutely transfixed. And he was challenging her. He was saying, Ms. Brown, if you can come to our center in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and following our protocols, under proper observing conditions, demonstrate that you actually do have paranormal ability, then the James Randi Educational Foundation will pay you $1 million. And I saw this and I was blown away by this. Like, because I thought I had had a pretty good education, but I had never, I had never been exposed to this particular way of testing truth claims because I had a seminary degree and I had graduated from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln with a degree in history and Spanish which tend to kind of bypass you know engineering and you know the scientific method and so on in fact two days after I graduated in 1994 with my degree in history and Spanish I started a job scooping popcorn for minimum wage um, like that was <laughs> that, was, that was my career path. Um, well, anyway, I'm watching this, and I'm fascinated. And as soon as the episode is over, I run to my computer and go look up randy.org, R-A-N-D-I, and discovered that every week he would blog on Fridays, and he would talk about people who had come into the center who claimed to have paranormal abilities, and he would give a narrative of how they tested them. And I was blown away by this because this was a great education. Like, here's how you test someone who claims that they can do dousing. Here's how you test the girl whose parents say that she can read completely blindfolded. Here's how you test when a person says that they can, you, you know, you can draw a card and they can tell you what the next card is going to be in the deck. And all of these, and every week he would talk about these different tests and this was an amazing education. And so I started following this and all of a sudden, a bunch of questions started popping up that really started causing me some trouble. And mind you, I am a missionary supported by Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, and I'm here in China to do, you know, to make disciples and do church planning. Like, that's what I'm here for. But week after week, I'm reading these blogs and I'm starting asking questions that are really, really troubling me, such as, I've always believed my entire life 
that if you need something, you get on your knees, you pray, you ask God for it, and then God answers you. And how do you know that God answers prayer? Well, you keep a journal. I asked for this on such and such a date, and then two days later or three weeks later, I got this, therefore we know my prayers were answered. And all of a sudden, as I'm, and I'm reading Randy's stuff, and I start you know, clicking on other hyperlinks, and reading some other skeptics stuff, I start finding new methods to question whether maybe that's not the most scientific approach to answering how, whether you get your prayers answered or not. And this really started bothering me. And September turned into October, and October tur turned into November, and the questions got deeper and more painful and scarier. And I suddenly, by December, I found myself in a serious crisis of faith. And remember again, I had a seminary education, and I like the metaphor you used yesterday, Perry. It's like, you learn where all the bones are buried. You know, when you have your Bible in front of you, like you know all of these places where there are serious interpretive problems and serious archaeological <laughs> questions, you know, and serious textual questions and serious ambiguities and you know, philosophical contradictions and so on. You know all this stuff. And here I am, more or less alone, in China, as secular a place as you will ever find. And by December, I was sick and terrified. In fact, the last week of December 2001, something went weird with my stomach and it, like, it just like stopped digesting food for a few days. Like it, I would eat stuff and it would just sit there. I could not digest what I was wrestling with. And this was terrifying because I had, as much as a person could leave everything and throw themselves into ministry and missions, this is, that was exactly what I had done. And suddenly for the first time in my life I'm questioning, is there anything out there? Hello. You know, and I couldn't digest food and I'm cold because it's winter and there's no central heating where I lived, you know, and it's late at night and I'm curled up in a fetal position in my bed and it's dark and it's quiet and I'm like, hello, is there anyone out there? Is there anything out there? That's a Pink Floyd song. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you can understand a little bit of like existential hell. You know, did I just, you know, I'm 30 years old. Did I just throw away the last 30 years of my life for nothing? And thankfully, a, a doctor had some nice herbal stuff that cleared up my stomach. And right after first of the year, 2002, and Perry will remember this, I thought about this. I'm like, I need some help. And the last thing I'm going to do is email the guys in the missions department or the seminary <laughs> and say, oh, I'm your, I'm your you know, evangelist church planner in China. I'm having serious doubts as to all of this. Like, Because that never happens to anybody else anyway. Right. But I'm like, well, who, is there anyone neutral, Harry? <laughs> who, and when I say neutral, I mean, you know, Perry's clearly Christian. He's committed to his Christianity. But, you know, I attended one of your coffeehouse theology meetings with you. Perry can deal with this. 
Okay, and Perry understands my, my upbringing, and we, you know, we have our secure email connection and so on. So I, I think the first question I shot you was, okay, let's start with this one, Perry, because I'm really struggling. Why do you believe the Bible? Which is not the greatest question you could ask, but it's, you know, it's a good starting place. And Perry and I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And Perry, Perry gave the best answers he could find and, you know, came back. And it honestly wasn't working for me because it just seemed that every answer and reply you gave me on historical questions or philosophical questions, it was as though, okay, if you are committed to Christianity being true, then that answer will satisfy you. But if you're starting with a blank, blank slate, I don't see anything that would lead me to that conclusion. But Perry was a very, very good sparring partner. I had no idea until years later what my questions were actually doing to you in, tor in terms of mm. pushing you to the edge. You know, at one point you sent me a bunch of books. You sent me some William Lane Craig, and I think there was some Geisler and Nix in there as well. Big armful of books that wasn't cheap. Um, no. And uh, very help, but, but I'm watching as my whole belief system is just more or less eroding. And by the end of 2002, I was like, I just don't believe this Christianity thing anymore, like at all. And I came back for a visit stateside. I ended the relationship with the church in LA, turned around and went back to China where I spent an additional year and a half. Now I was just a guy in China teaching English at a hotel and was not a missionary church planner anymore. And I'm watching as like my whole life and my whole worldview is changing. Well, I started to become aware of something that became a real issue. And that was, I was angry. I was really angry about a lot of stuff. Angry that I had given up 30 years of my life for something that I decided was empty. Angry that all of those dogmatic preachers and all those dogmatic professors all those years had just been feeding me a bunch of bull. So fast forward to 2004, Perry brought Tana and came out and I was already planning on going home, which was why you were doing the trip. It's like, oh, got to get, got to get Tana to China before Uncle Brian moves home. And Perry came out to visit, spent a few days. I'm not sure we spent the whole time arguing. <laughs> Like you said yesterday, but there was the conversation in the van on the way to Leaping Tiger Gorge, which we all remember, you know, and the falcons and the mutations and the eyes, eyesight and so on. And that was a good conversation. I don't know if you remember that same evening. Yeah, we, I do. We went to Richard's family's house and they fed us this wonderful dinner. And somehow you and I ended up in this conversation, I think, about homosexuality. Yeah. And I was angry about the subject of homosexuality because yeah. it wasn't an issue I had struggled with, but one of my best friends all through college had and had been, you know, fed the, the fundamentalist line about homosexuality and I just watched it torture him and torture him and torture him. And somehow that subject came up and I just lit into Perry. We're sitting in these people's living room, <laughs> you know, having been fed a meal and here I am, you know, just going at Perry. And of course, they don't understand what we're talking no, about. No, they don't. <laughs> 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 and 
not at all. You know, one of the one of the other ironies about that particular evening is we watched we all watched the movie The Truman Show, which is it, it's like this funny little comedy that is one of the most disturbingly profound journeys into human epistemology that has shown up on film in the last 50 years. Seriously. What? Next year we'll have an epistemology seminar. We should. Sorry, I, I, I use the word epistemology. It, 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 epistemology is basically the study of or the question of how do you know what you think you know? Yeah. Or how do you come to believe the things that you come yeah. to believe? And so on. And what's your basis for, for believing things? So the Truman Show, like that was actually my story. It's like, holy crap, is this whole thing just a giant construct? This is just man-made construct. Well, so you told me, I want to say it was maybe a couple years later, you told me, you said, Brian, that night at Richard's house, I could tell something inside of you had died. You said it was really, really scary. Yeah, he was turning into one of them. <laughs> Namely, the furious militant atheists whose happy plug fell out and are now f furious at the world and spewing their venom on everybody. And it was like, oh no. It was like, it really scared me. And it wasn't, it was like, okay, yeah, like, look, I know there's all these questions and we can argue about homosexuality and whatever else, but man, like, like Brian just like went over some dotted line. That really scared me. In fact, it, it, almost, it kind of jerked me back like, I, I almost felt like I was following him in a sense, but like, no, I, okay, I don't want that. I've, I've already seen a whole bunch of that. There's nothing healthy about it. And uh, like, well, I don't, I don't know where this thing is going, but, well, this is going to be an interesting ride. Well, so, Perry, you were on your, as a result of that day, you launched on your evolution journey. I yeah. moved home to Lincoln after nine years away and for the next five and a half years I was on a journey of anger what I will say about your evolution journey was I'm really grateful for it because you know what you learned about the brilliance of cells and how they engineer evolution and so forth you've had lots of Christian people tell you that you gave them a rational reason to continue to embrace their faith and not be at odds with science, right? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this yesterday. What this new model, this evolution 2.0 model also does is for the person who doesn't have a religious commitment, it gives us the ability to accept evolution as true without feeling really stupid when you raise honest questions like, seriously, that tree is just the result of accident upon accident upon accident? Because I had decided, you know, evolution has to be true, and then I would walk outside and I would see these trees, and something deep, deep down inside of me would be like, really, Brian? Seriously, just random mutation? plus natural selection, rinse and repeat, seriously? And then, you know, I just shake my head and be like, no, 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 this is science, people. This is science. 
you know, and always somewhere and there's like, really, Brian? Seriously? And everybody experiences that, and that's why this topic is so volatile, because that is the elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about on the secular side. So you supplied me with a way to accept evolution mm -hmm. and not have to be beholden, for example, to the old traditional interpretation of the biblical narrative. And that was very, very helpful. And so there was, there was never much of a debate about evolution, you know, after, after that. And I was very interested in what you were doing, although I was not crazy about your, you know, eagerness to just tie it intimately into Christianity right. so quickly. Right. But I spent several years very, very angry until one day in 2010. So we hired Drew Bischoff to come be our operations guy, and he and Jessica and all of us, we became very good friends. I don't know how many of you here know Drew Bischoff, but Drew and Jessica were a couple. They were living in Austin, Texas at the time, and they had grown up in an arch-fundamentalist community in California that was almost identical to ours, except that it was worse in a lot of ways. And... They a little had bit been louder and a little bit worse. A little bit louder and a little bit worse. And they, their particular, their particular, you know, thing. There had been all this grotesque sexual repression, you know, and shaming and and all that stuff that was part of their fundamentalism. And they invited me, since Drew and I were working on a Facebook project at the time. Drew was like, "Come down to Austin and spend New Year's with Jessica and me." So I did, and we had a blast. And literally from the first night there, we get to talking about some deep stuff. And we're up until 3 a.m. talking and laughing and crying and sharing stories of, you know, life under fundamentalism and, you know, the pain of this and the pain of that and how we've dealt with this issue and how we're working through that issue and so on. And, and we did this. The, the following Sunday, they're like, you know what, you can sleep in if you want, Brian, or you can come to church with Jessica and me. It's up to you, but we're going to do church this morning. I'm like, I'm, I'll do church. That's cool. That's great. I'm, I have no problem with that. So we go to their church service, and I'm sitting there in their big worship center. You know, and this is, you know, 21st century, you know, modern, evangelical, urban kind of Christianity. And they have the worship team, and they have the pastor who gets up and talks. And I remember, I remember precious little about what the, the service was about, except for this, that the worship team really irritated me. <laughs> and, and it was all, it, it, it was all the classical stuff that has irritated me for years about 21st century evangelical Christian worship. They have the PowerPoint up on the screen. They have the band playing some song that was written a year and a half ago. And the PowerPoint is misspelled. <laughs> and the song doesn't make coherent grammatical sense. <laughs> you know? And they're in the same sentence, you'll use the and then you and then go back to using the again. And weird. And I. And I'm like, this is supposed to be like transcendently supernatural. And they can't even get the PowerPoint right, you know? <laughs> and it was, it was all the stuff that had just irritated me just to the nth degree about Christianity and modern Christian worship. And then I look out of the corner of my eye and 
Standing over here is Drew. And Drew has one hand in his pocket and one hand in the air. And he's just kind of swaying very gently to the music. And I see that and I'm like, oh, you idiot. <laughs> And it's like room full of people having a made-up experience with song lyrics that don't even make sense. And this is supposed to be supernatural worship. And I'm like, I just hate this. <laughs> and all of a sudden, a thought hits me that I had been reflecting on over the previous couple years because I had been doing some self-help stuff that was very, very good and very, very valuable. And the thought was this, and Perry quoted this yesterday, although you got one word wrong. I'm thinking to myself how much I hate this and have always hated this Christian modern worship stuff. And the thought was, hate is just another word for want but cannot have, right? And that is a truth, and I'd, I'd invite you to go reflect on that and reflect on it deep. You cannot hate another person unless you have at some point expected something from them, thought that they should behave a certain way, wanted something from them, loved them, needed something from them. You cannot hate another human being, up to and including someone you met 30 seconds ago and you see them and you just feel this resentment. You cannot do that without some deep subconscious, unconscious, other than conscious part of you having wanted something first. Otherwise, it is impossible to experience hatred. And so if you are feeling hatred, you know there's something inside of you that you want, okay? And I realized in this moment, sitting there with Drew doing his thing, that this was true of me. And I'm like, oh crap. And I started crying. And I'm thinking this over. I'm angry because I want something. What is it I want? I want this whole Christianity thing to be true. Or I want this whole supernatural experience to actually be real. I want this but I'm convinced it's not. But I want it to be real. And I started crying. And I start, like, sobbing. And the worship band is still playing. And Drew is still there. And Jessica sees me, and she puts her arm around me, and she was just, like, doing this. And I continued. And, I, and I'm thinking through this. I'm like, I suddenly realize this is what all of those atheist people are so pissed about. They're not pissed because it's not true. They're pissed because they wanted it to be true. And I'm just crying and crying. And the worship band continues playing, and eventually they finish their song. And the pastor gets up, and he delivers his benediction, and the service is over. And I'm still sitting there crying. And Jessica has her arm around me, and eventually Drew comes around, and he sits down. And they don't know what's going on. They just know Brian's here just sobbing. 
and it, it just continues for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Eventually the pastor comes over and he sits. He's like, is it okay if I pray over you, Brian? I'm between sobs. I'm like, fine, fine. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> and it's like, like, why are people who have come out of religion so angry about it? Because it's like you were told that daddy who's away at the moment is going to be home at, by Christmas time. And when daddy comes home at Christmas time, we're going to be together as a family and he's got lots of gifts. He's got gifts for you and gifts for you and gifts for you. And daddy's going to be home at Christmas. And Christmas comes and Christmas goes and daddy doesn't show up. And you find out there never was a daddy in the first place. And it was just a story. And people people's whole narratives of their lives are like this. I believed daddy was coming home for Christmas with an armful of gifts and there was no daddy in the first place. Who would not feel angry and betrayed if that was your narrative? And some of the most angry, miserable people you will ever meet are people with daddy issues, right? Male and female both. And I realized, I'm like, this was what I was so angry about. All these years, I was so pissed. Not just because of the funny grammar on the slides, you know, and, and the arm waving and any of that. I was pissed because, really, I wanted this to be real. And it wasn't. It was just made up human stuff, but I wanted it to be real. And somewhere 10 or 20 minutes after the service is over, I'm finally done crying. And Drew was like, are you good? Can we go home? And I'm like, yeah, we can go home. And in the car, and in the car on the way home, Drew's like, well, so, uh, elephant in the room here, Brian. Um, I gotta ask, are, are you a Christian now? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, to be honest, Drew, no. I don't think my actual views about, you know, the historicity of Christianity have changed. All I know is what I was so angry about was just, I just wanted this to be true. And it turned out it wasn't, as far as I could tell, and that's what I was so pissed. And I know this, I'm not angry anymore. Like, there's not, there's not a drop of anger left. It's just, because I got it. What I really needed was just to acknowledge the child inside that wanted it to be true. And if you just let the child say it and experience it and feel it, even if it's not true, the child can be happy because the child can acknowledge what the child always wanted. Andrew's like, it's a little complex, but okay. I, <laughs> I can understand that. And that literally was seven and a half years ago. That was one of the major turning points in my life. That it was like the anger was gone. Because I knew what it was I had always wanted. If we can fast forward to 2016, your, Perry, your, your 30 day reboot has, was really, really super valuable. And I think, I think you did a show of hands yesterday all the people who've done 30-day reboot. And so if you have not done 30-day reboot, please do, because we're going we're gonna to offer it again at some point in the next month or two or three. And it's really, really important 
that you understand why ancient literature is so valuable and why it's worth your time in 2017 and beyond to be spending your time every day in old and ancient writings. Okay, so you talked yesterday about, you know, the libraries burning and people keeping this stuff in, in the clay jars, you know, to save it from the marauders and so forth because it was valuable to them. The great old works of literature are valuable because, of course, they were meaningful to those people and they, they kept them around and they've survived and, and for that. But another really important reason, which I didn't really understand until this year, when I discovered, like a whole bunch of us here, I discovered Jordan Peterson, mm -hmm. professor at University of Toronto, was that the oldest and greatest works of literature are archetypal. In other words, they tell stories that reflect the deepest, most relatable experiences we have and that reflect our internal hardwiring almost perfectly. Why did Harry Potter sell so well and become this mega sensation? Was it because J.K. Rowling is just a really nifty storyteller? She is a really nifty storyteller, but that's not why Harry Potter just hit this massive international nerve. It's because J.K. Rowling, what did she study at university? She studied Latin, Greek, and the classics and immersed herself for the years of her education in the oldest, most enduring classical works of Western literature. And that, this, as the story goes, that one day on the train when she's either heading from London or to London and suddenly gets this inspiration where it's as though this entire story just appears in her head, that came from her years and years of deep immersion in old classical literature. The old stories of classical literature resonate with us because they reflect something deep inside our soul. So we all, I think, know the story of Cain and Abel. You know, it's chapter four in Genesis, probably. And I understood this just within the last month or two for the very first time. Why do we all resonate with the story of Cain and Abel? I mean, it's this tiny little snippet of text, but you go around and you just mention Cain and Abel to any person on the street and they'll recognize it and they'll remember it. The atheist version of Cain and Abel, which if you listen to Sam Harris's podcast, he'll give you that, and I have great respect for Sam Harris, but I think he's completely bankrupt on this particular point. The atheist version of Cain and Abel goes like this. Two brothers believe in a magical fairy in the sky. And brother one believes in his version of the fat magical fairy in the sky, and brother two believes in his version of the magical fairy in the sky, and their ideas conflict, and because my magical fairy in the sky doesn't match your magical fairy in the sky, therefore I'm going to kill you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what happens every time you let people believe in magical fairies in the sky. Okay? That's the atheist narrative of things, and it is so drained of life and meaning and vitality. And in my view, it's ugly. Yeah. It's just, it, it's an ugly, ugly thing. Why does the story of Cain and Abel resonate with us? I am making a sacrifice. I am giving up something of value because I want to please someone 
important to me. I have a sibling. The sibling is giving up something of value to him, and he wants to please someone who is important to him. The authority figure, for whatever reason unknown to you or me, decides that he likes your sacrifice and mine is not acceptable. We don't know why. I don't know all the reasons. It's just you're accepted by the beloved authority figure. I'm not. And that's enough to make me hate you enough to kill you. Okay? Now, that's not a beautiful narrative. In a sense, it's not any more beautiful than the atheist narrative, but it's a narrative with meaning that we can all relate with. Have we all experienced deep jealousy over someone who was accepted and we weren't? We all have. And so you tell a kid the story of Cain and Abel once and they'll remember it for their lifetime, right? All kinds of stories that make their way through our culture are that way. I can't tell you how many different people of different cultures have, have asked me, Brian, do you know the story of the boy who cried wolf? <laughs> I've had people in Chinese come up to me and say, well, Brian, you know this. Have you ever heard this story? There was a boy who was a shepherd. So we all recognize the narrative of the boy that cried wolf. And I don't know where the very first boy that cried wolf story ever originated. Was it in the Middle East? Was it in Far East Asia? I have no idea. It's just everywhere I've been, people know the story because they, rec they respond to it. Everywhere I've been, people know the story of the emperor who had no clothes, which as far as I know was, was just a Hans Christian Andersen story from the, whenever he lived, 16, 17, 1800s, something like that. But I've had Chinese people tell me, Brian, do you know the story of the emperor who had no clothes? Because this is, this, this is a narrative that just catches on everywhere you go. Why do people love the stories of Jesus so much? I have several answers to that, but I'll give you one of them that I think is really important. How many of you have spent time reading the Tao Te Ching, which is Lao Tzu's, how would you, well, Taoism, basically. It's, you know, an ancient piece of Chinese literature, very, very well known in the Far East. I can, if I want, read the Tao Te Ching in Chinese, and I've given it the old college try, I don't know how many times, and it just doesn't do much for me because it's just selection after selection after selection of these incredibly profound sounding but utterly non-concrete bits about life and existence. I'll tell you something concrete. Pull open the Gospel of Luke and you'll get concrete, concrete, concrete. Real, living, breathing, concrete narratives that are just so full of grit and life and reality. You know, you open it up. Jesus arose before dawn and went up the hillside to pray. Afterwards, he came down and he and the disciples got in the boat and went across the lake to Gennesaret. This is so concrete. Right, you know, it's living, breathing people and they had names. And if you want to get on a plane, you can fly to the Holy Land and you can, you know, visit these exact sites. I mean, it's just so real. And the, uh, the late film critic Roger Ebert said years ago, he said, he said, the most, the most specifically local stories you will ever find actually end up being stories that have the most universal relevance. So a story about a Jewish man and his followers 
in first century Palestine actually resonates more universally with people than a story that is nowhere near as specific as that. Let me just highlight three things from the Gospels that have spoken to me in the last year. Story number one. Jesus is invited by some religious leaders to go eat dinner at the home of one of the religious leaders. He goes in, he sits down, he's eating with them, and in come, somewhere in the middle of the meal, in comes a woman. And everybody in the room knows this woman. She's got the reputation, and she comes in, and she goes to Jesus' feet, and she starts crying. She's crying, and she's, she, she's crying on his feet, and she's wiping, his, wiping off her tears with her hair. And the men in the room are like, um, Jesus, do you know who this person is that you're just letting touch you like this? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. Let's say, let's say a guy has two people who owe him money. One owes him $5,000, the other guy owes him $50,000. He forgives the $5,000 guy, he forgives the $50,000 guy. Which one of these guys do you think might be a little more grateful? The guy says, well, probably the $50,000 guy. He says, thank you, that's the good answer. He says, for the record, Mr. Pharisee, religious leader, when a guy comes to your home, normal protocol around here is you wash his feet. I noticed you didn't bother washing my feet when I came in, but this lady has not stopped washing my feet with her tears. The person who has been forgiven little loves little. The person who has been forgiven much loves much. I don't care whether you believe, this is now Brian talking, I don't care, I don't care whether you believe there was a historical Jesus or Jesus was a complete myth. You cannot read that story and not be moved to the core by it and recognize that this is a beautiful piece of spiritual, religious, and moral thought, right? You cannot if you have a soul inside your body. You cannot read the story of the prodigal son and not be moved almost to tears by it. Young man goes to his dad, basically says, forgive the French, fuck you, I wish you were dead, give me all my inheritance money, I'm gone. He leaves, he squanders it, he has no money, he's broke, he's feeding pigs. He decides, you know what, even the slaves that work for my dad have it better than I do. I'm going to go back to dad and just say, make me a slave. And when he comes back, dad doesn't want his son to be a slave. He celebrates, he wants to kill the fatted calf and invite his son willingly back into the family. If I'm not mistaken, one of the more profound moments of your life in the last 10 years pivoted on the story of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. When you're seeing yourself in the narrative for the very first time, no matter what you think of Jesus and whether he was real or historical or not, you cannot read the story of the prodigal son and not be moved by it. Right? And... I was telling you guys at the table the other night, third story, I spent time in the Gospel of Luke this year and had the bizarre experience that when we got to the end of chap 
uh, chapter 23, whatever it is, that where Jesus has now been delivered up and he's been crucified and he's, and he's dead and he's buried. After I don't know how many years away from Christianity, I'm reading this story of Jesus, who is this very complex, contradictory, irascible Jewish guy who seems to have not very modern views on slavery and, and so forth. And I'm reading this story, and at the end of the chapter, I'm like brokenhearted. I'm like, this is bizarre. Like, the hero of this story is dead, and I am like crushed. And fortunately, there's one more chapter, and it has a very happy ending, but I realized after reading about the crucifixion of Jesus for the very first time, I had the bizarre thought where I'm like, I think I might actually love this guy. Like, now I get it. Like, all those people, all those years that I saw, thought were so corny, they're like, I just love Jesus. <laughs> Where I'm like, <laughs> And suddenly, here I am, this was a couple months ago, I guess, and I've just finished the narrative where he's been crucified, and for one of the very first times in my life, I'm like heartbroken. I'm like, okay. Maybe the I love Jesus people aren't so crazy after all. So, do I believe the Bible is the, the inspired and errant word of God? I don't think so. I think that's a no. Do I believe there was a historical Jesus? There was a historical Jesus. I don't think there's much question about that. Uh, do I believe he's the Jewish Messiah? I don't know. Do I believe that immersing yourself in these old stories and learning more about yourself is immensely valuable? Yes, absolutely. Do I have answers? You know, is there supernatural cause behind the Big Bang and the origin of life and so on? Don't know. And I think it's wonderfully, wonderfully liberating to not know the answer for me at this stage in my particular life. But that is my story and, and I think there's nothing more valuable than just diving in and reading the literature of old and looking at your soul and being challenged and knowing there are some really hard questions out there that we don't know answers to yet. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>